Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Vuk Jukic and this is Anablock Podcast. This show is exploration of enterprise software, technology, ideas, business, science, history and world affairs. This podcast is for anyone that likes to learn new things about business and technology. Anablock Podcast is brought to you by Anablock. Anablock is a system integrator and Salesforce partner. Anablock's technical team helps organizations to implement, customize, and optimize their Salesforce applications. In this episode, our guest is David Mastery. Dave is a data architect, author, and founder of Gluon Digital. We talk about his book, Data Migration Patterns and Best Practices, Salesforce Ecosystem, and many other interesting topics. I hope you will enjoy our conversation. Dave, thanks for being on Anablock Podcast. I appreciate your time today. I uh, had a chance to uh, work on a project for a client, was doing some research, and I came across, I think, one of your blogs, or basically you were interviewed uh, for a blog. And then I came across your book on Amazon, got it, actually have been using it uh, on, on one of my projects to get some information about like the best practices for data migration. So, uh, I guess, let me start with this. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Um, so a bit about me. Uh, yeah, I've, I'm pretty much a technology veteran. I've been in the technology space for uh, nearly 20 years. I had, a, I had a, always had a strong enterprise systems background and a strong data background. Um, it's a data side of things I was initially interested when I was studying in school. Um, and then uh, I get, I did, you know, a few years of BRP systems and then I was in the CRM space. And once you're in the CRM space, you kind of end up in the, uh, in the Salesforce world as you can imagine. So that's essentially what happened to me. Um, And then when I joined the Salesforce world back in in, in late 2013, um, it was clear that there's somewhat of a dearth of really, really good data people in, uh, you know, in the industry, or at least within the smaller Salesforce SIs and the smaller shops. Um, so, So I started bringing a lot of these best practices, just general data best practices, you know, to to uh, the team that I was working with, um, really helping how we improved our data migrations and and how we built our integrations and really putting, you know, best practices that are are used throughout the you know the data world, um, you know, to within what we were doing within the Salesforce ecosystem, um, and it didn't take long for me to figure out that. These issues are not isolated to the firm that I was at. Um, they were pretty rampant through uh, the industry, and, and we can go through the reasons why or the theories behind why that is. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of kind of how we started. It started off training the team at the firm I was working at, which was called uh, uh, Red Kite Technologies at the time. Um, okay. They got acquired by Liquid Hub, which then eventually got acquired by uh, Capgemini. Um, so unfortunately, that team no longer uh, exists, but I'm still in touch with um, a lot of the people um, who I've worked with. Yeah, so we're still all good friends. Um, yeah, and I hopped around a bit with a couple of other SIs 
Uh, and then um, last September, um, I went out on my own and I started a firm called uh, Glue on Digital, okay. which where we, we exclusively focus on partnering with SIs to really, really help them up their data game. Um, and Very interesting. Right, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So we do, we've been doing a lot, a lot of really, really cool projects. Um, a lot of helping, you know, streamline data migrations. Um, a lot of it is part of it's like, like uh, where we'll offer white glove data migration services. So we work with an SI. They, they're like, it's like, you know, you guys know Salesforce. You're really, really good at it. You're not great at data. You're a small shop. You don't even want to focus on data. We'll partner yep. together. Um, and because we're not an SI, we're not, we're not a registered Salesforce partner at all. Uh, we absolutely do not compete. Uh, with SIs. So yeah, it's, it's just been a fun ride. So that's great. So th you are, uh, well, actually, let me start with this. So can you tell us what, what is the name of your book and where is it available? So a uh, book is called um, Developing Data Migrations and Integrations with Salesforce. Um, the subtitle of the book is Patterns and Best Practices. So it, uh I'll get a bit into the book in a second. It's available literally everywhere, Amazon, barnesandnobles.com. Um, any major book carrier will have it. It's published through A-Press, which okay. is a big technology. Well, it's one of the mid-sized, I would say, technology publishers, but there's not that many big technology publishers, so I think of them as big. Um, most people recognize them by the, uh, the yellow and black or orange and black uh, colors. Yep. Awesome. Um, so, so, yeah. So we will actually publish the, the link to the book in general to your company in our description. So for all the uh, listeners, you will have an option to actually, uh, or you'll see a link in the description of this uh, episode. And um, so it, it's a great book and we can definitely talk about it a little bit more. I, I just want to go back to uh, your previous statement in reference to your business. That's very interesting, actually. I've been working in the SI space for many years, uh, have come across many SIs, but I think this is the first time I come across a company like yours, which is um, acting basically as, an, I guess, some kind of like a data advisor uh, to, to SIs when they're doing data migrations. So can, can you just maybe walk us through and just how, how did you come up with this idea and uh, what's like for all the SIs listening, what, what's the best way for them to approach you or at what point should they be engaging with you, et cetera? So it, it's very clear, at least it was to me that there's, there's an issue in the ecosystem, particularly when it comes to data migrations. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do because Salesforce BAs tend to not come from the strongest of, of you know, super technical backgrounds. And this stuff is really, really technical. When you're talking about data transformation and you know, normalization theory and performance tuning um, and cutovers and, and you know, various other systems, you know, ERP systems that you may be integrating or migrating from, legacy CRM systems that are architected completely different, connecting to web services. Um, I find that developers, Salesforce developers, tend to do a better job at this, but it, for whatever reason, it doesn't fall on them. It tends to, 
to fall on more of the Salesforce consultant BA admin types. Um, and I think that's one of the issues, particularly for someone who's like more of an accidental admin who just wasn't formally trained uh, in this kind of work. Um, and this isn't a knock on these people. You know, please don't think that, you know, I'm saying that these guys don't, aren't doing anything, you know, something wrong. They didn't go into Salesforce to be manipulating data in Excel and loading it. They often don't like it. Um, and it's often looked at as kind of a necessary evil. Um, so that's one issue. The second issue is um, there's a lot of bad information online on how to do these things. Most of them revolve around almost proof of concept type level work where they're just using the data loader, the Apex data loader, uh, and they load a couple of objects in, they do some basic upserts, and they're like, wow, look how simple it is. And then, you know, people will start doing that um, because that's what they found online. Um, and it works, right? So they grant wonderful, they do a couple of data migrations, uh, they load accounts, they load contacts, they load some opportunities. Things are working well. Um, then they're put on a you know half a million dollar project or a million dollar project, and they're mar migrating data out of dynamic CRM or out of Siebel um, or out of seven different legacy systems, and they're merging the data and they got to deduplicate it and marry it up and calculate all these numbers, um, and then it has to go into Salesforce. And these techniques that they use for these small data migrations where they're migrating three or four CSVs, you know, often the client does the data export for them. They don't even have to do the data exports. All of their techniques that work so fine for a small project just absolutely collapse. Um, the tools fail, Excel absolutely fails when you start dealing with tens of thousands of rows, right? Excel starts really choking at like 100,000, 200,000 rows, the thing just crawls. Um, yep. And then they're doing it for data manipulation um, and they get frustrated with it. And again, they just don't have, uh, you know, have the proper tools in their belt, nor the training, nor is it what they ever envisioned they'd be doing in their career. Um, so yeah, it, it, you know, if you're an SI and this is something that you're struggling with and you're losing sales or having project failures because of it, um, you can reach me anywhere. Uh, I'm, on, um, I'm on LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. Um, you can find me on my website, which is gluon.digital um, or gluondigital.com, um, or just shoot me an email, dave at gluon.digital. Um, yeah, and, and what we'll do is we'll partner with you guys so that you can, you know, not have these same kind of, kind of failures or challenges and, and you know, keep things running smoothly and let you essentially let them focus on what they do best, which is Salesforce. Okay, excellent. Um, so maybe can you, you know, um, touching a little bit on your book, and there's a lot of great information in there, a lot of good um, sort of um, instructions how to perform certain jobs and what are the best practices. Can you just touch on uh, some of the best practices that you want to share with the audience? When yeah, absolutely. Data migration. So um, the, the book is, is the Patterns and Best Practices book. It's not a coding book, but it does get very technical, particularly once you get a little bit past the halfway mark in the book. Um, so there were a couple of things I wanted to do when it went in the book. One, I wanted to make sure that it remained uh, tool agnostic. So I didn't want someone to buy this book and like it forces you into using 
a particular tool, you know, uh, a particular ETL tool, let's say. Um, so we're really focused on patterns and best practices, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure that I didn't give like one of these little easy examples. Um, I wanted to go really in depth. Um, so towards, like I said, towards the middle of the book, particularly chapter seven, when I go through like a real world example of a pretty, uh, I would call moderately complex data migration. Um, so you can really see, you know, how complex these things can get and how to properly structure them. Um, so the book essentially starts off assuming you know nothing about data. So a lot of, it starts off chapter one essentially, you know, what is a relational database? I think that's the name of the chapter. No, the name of the chapter is uh, relational, relational database is a normal, and normal, a normalization. Yeah. So just understanding traditional data concepts. Um, so it's basically bringing you kind of an intro course to what the rest of the non-Salesforce world thinks about when they think of data or traditional um, data modeling. Um, and then, because a lot of people will think that Salesforce is a relational database. Um, and they think that because it uses relationships, right? But it's not. The truth is it's, it's not. And I talk about that a bit um, in the book, why it's not. So chapter two talks about, you know, how Salesforce is structured and why it's different than their tradition. Um, so that's kind of how the book is divided. The first couple, the first few chapters are intros to relational databases, just traditional data concepts. Then we go into the Salesforce concepts. If you're a data guy coming into the Salesforce world, um, that's going to be really interesting for you. Um, you know, how data structures its data, how Salesforce structures its data, and how to use the APIs and all of that kind of stuff. Um, then we move into um, be uh, best practices and I categorize them um, based on six attributes. Um, so when you're thinking in terms of best practices, it's a best practice is telling you how you should do something, right? While the attribute is telling you the why, right? So the six attributes is essentially well-planned, um, is automated, essentially push button migration. Uh, it's controlled, uh, meaning you can control what happens when and how much data goes in and out um, at what given point. So even though it's automated, you need to a quick way to like filter data down or up. Reversible is the ability to undo a data migration should something go wrong. Repairable is the ability to fix uh, data migration. Uh, after the migration is done, um, and lastly is testable, so that you, your your data migration um, is able to be you know easily tested uh, by either QA testers or users as part of UAT. So again, well planned, automated, um, controlled, reversible, uh, repairable, and testable. Um, and those are essentially the attributes that tie back in to each of the best practices that I go through. Um, and I think about 40 of them is what I go through in the book. So um, just to answer your question, some of the, the big ones um, or the most important is the first best practice because it's absolutely the most important is have a plan. Um, it sounds so simple, right? But you'll, you'll be surprised yep. how many people go into um, into a, uh, a data migration or almost anything in their life without a plan. They just dive in head first. Um, so it, it's the first best practice is absolutely plan the thing out. Um, you know, you want to, to 
and, and, and a lot of these are like other best practices tied in. So for example, you want to start early, um, you need to do your data uh, analysis on it. Um, and if you don't start early, what happens is you, you come to late in QA phase and you find out you missed all of this data or that when looking at the legacy data, the data is telling a different story than came out in your requirement sessions. Um, and if you started early, you would have saw those differences and raised them up in the requirement sessions. And then, you know, the client or, or the business might have said, oh, yeah, that's because of this odd edge case, right? Um, okay. And then you can fine tune the actual build as well. So you want to work hand in hand um, with them. So, um, right, having a plan and that, that goes to having a good plan, but having a plan uh, at minimum. Um, starting early, very, so very just important. Just to, to touch on that, because I think that's, that's like one of the definitely very important part based on my experience, at least uh, having a plan. You know, every project is different. Um, every system is different. But is there some kind of like a general template or a guide that you follow, uh, like some kind of like a foundation for a plan? Or is there something you can just share? Yeah, yeah. So again, start early. Um, so I, I code automated scripts that do data analysis for me or help with the data analysis. So essentially analyze the legacy system. Um, usually yeah. we start off with, you know, with, um, so what I do is I look at the legacy, the legacy system. I get either all the objects or all the entities or all the tables, depending on what kind of system it is, how the data is stored. Um, and then I look, I start looking at the tables that are most heavily populated, meaning have the most rows. Okay. Um, and I, I kind of not, I kind of equate that with level of importance, although it's not really true, but it's a good way to look at it, right? Um, so usually the ones with the most populated are not the most important, but it's usually pretty close to the top. So for ex example, activities will be usually pretty high up there. Emails will be up there. But at the same thing, things like database update logs will be really up there, um, and that's not so important. Um, so I do that. Then I look at those tables, and then um, I'll sit down with the client and say, looking at your legacy data model, these are all the types of data that we found. Um, I compare that with the statement of work. That's the contract. Um, okay. That's more because I'm coming from the SI side. But if you're internal, you'll still have some kind of charter right, of what's in scope. And then we use that to validate scope. So that's the first thing we do. Go to the tables, validate the scope, um, and adjust the scope as needed. Um, and then once we have the object level, we can dig down into the, uh, the field levels. Then um, partner with your BA, your PM, to put together a timeline. Those are other best practices. right? Don't go with this alone, yet you're on a team. Um, and those, those other individuals are critical right? to work with your project manager, to work with the BA on the same timeline. Um, then we document all your transformations. Um, and I, I, in the book, I go a bit about how to structure your document almost so that you can generate code off the document. Okay. Um, yeah, and then, you, and then you essentially build out a transformation layer that transforms the data in uh, a way that aligns it with the Salesforce object model. Then you load the data in order of the hierarchy, top to bottom, meaning the, the Salesforce hierarchy. So accounts, then contacts, um, then maybe opportunities next, and then activities potentially. 
Um, and then you have other objects, contact to contact relations, account to contact relations, you know, and then industry specific stuff. Maybe you have quotes, maybe you have deals, maybe you have financial accounts, you know, all of this kind of kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and then you go into into QA. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's really the 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 key is that like each one of these steps has you know a whole set of, of details, um, and all of those attributes that we discussed before go in at each one of those steps, right? We want to make sure that those those things when 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 can be are automated. That when you're doing your data analysis, that's also planned out. When you're doing your QA, that's also planned out, right? Makes sense. Yep, definitely. Uh, so, what are like um, some of the mo uh, based on your experience so far? What are some of the biggest challenges that organizations are ha facing when they are, uh, you know, extracting, transforming, and then loading data into Salesforce? Um, uh, you know, like something that I've seen a lot is, is not understanding what's the sequence of object that you just mentioned and which data goes first or what have you seen through your experience? So that's surprising because that I haven't seen a lot. Um, that's something that usually in my, in my experience to get right is the order that things need to be loaded. Sometimes you have to take a second pass because the Salesforce object model is funny. Um, for example, if you have account and then you have a hierarchy, so first you have to load all your accounts and then you have to update those accounts with the parents, right? Um, that kind of stuff. Um, where I find the biggest difficulties are the data analysis of the legacy system. Often, particularly with smaller clients, they don't understand their legacy data. Sometimes their legacy data is incredibly dirty and you need to clean that up. Um, and, and a lot of shops don't have the talent to understand how to clean it up or they don't have the desire um, or more likely they just write in the contract that they're not going to do it um, and just, you know, kind of wash their hands uh, uh, of that kind of stuff. Um, and then the next part is really complicated transformations. Um, and it doesn't even have to be really complicated, even moderate level of transformations throw a lot of people into, into a loop. Um, I've interviewed people for data analysts, um, probably 50 people I've interviewed and I've never once had anyone answer this question correctly. Um, and that's, and it's, and it's a really simple question in my mind. It's, well, it's a simple use case. It's not easy to do, but it's so common. Um, and it's, I have a relational database and if you understand relational databases, there's no concept of a multi-select pick list um, because that's that's just an absolute violation of, of relational database, uh, you know, best practices or theory. Um, so they'll have a child table basically that will have the values. And if I need to flatten that child table into a multi-select pick list, how do you do it, right? Um, essentially that, that question. Um, and it's incredibly rare that I'll have someone answer that. The best answer that I've ever got, I think, was um, something along the lines of this particular ETL tool had the need a feature that does it for you. Um, and they weren't even sure if that was true. So yeah, it, it's, it's this, this, this kind of stuff. Um, 
Yeah. What so, I'm seeing a lot of nowadays is also uh, we're seeing a lot of acquisitions where okay. the, the, um, the acquired organization is also on Salesforce, both and the, the acquiring organization, and they need to migrate the data into an existing org. Um, and the assumption is that there's an overlap in, in customer base. And how do we make sure that we're not creating duplicates? How do we merge that? And then there's also the, you know, the change control, right? How do you onboard those, those customers where they were two, they were separate customers and separate organizations, and now they need to be treated as a single customer with one organization. And how do you identify those people? So that's becoming a really, really common use case. Uh, so, you know, kind of touching on, on um, cleaning up the data in the legacy system, what are generally, like, what are some of the, I guess, smart things to do in, in that aspect of, of, you know, cleaning up the data, meaning like, um, are we really, uh, do we need to load all the junk into Salesforce or what are some of the steps that, that you would take to decide what, which data really belongs to Salesforce? So one of the things that, or, or that is a best practice that I list in the book and should be a best practice is data migrations need to be tested also. So if you plan on loading the data to the production org and then cleaning it up, you don't know what the final state of that data will look like when it's cleaned up. Um, so I like to automate it as much as possible or fix it in the source org before the migration so that I do, I do a migration, a test migration to a sandbox or to a production org that's not in use yet. Um, then they can validate that and say that it's right. Then I'm going to wipe out all that and then reload it when we're ready to go live with the latest cut of data. Um, and again, that's very easy to do because my data migrations are essentially one click. They're push button. And it does all the transformation and all the data cleansing and all of that. So that's how I like to do it. Um, and the problem, that's the biggest problem with cleaning the data, at least in my mind, post go live, is you don't know what it's gonna look like. Um, and, and, you know, you're just gonna go live with, with bad data and, and hope for the best. Um, and it's not necessarily a horrible approach. You know, maybe you can be very confident you can clean it. Um, but in, in general, my experience is that if you kick the can down the line on data cleansing, it just never happens. Um, so I like to force it to happen at this time. Um, I, I'm not sure if I answered your question or I just forgot no, no, what the you, question was because yeah, I didn't remember. Like, no, no problem. No, I, I was really uh, trying to, I think you partially did answer it, but you know, it, it's about as a, as a data uh, guru, uh, you know, when you work with organizations, a lot of them, as you have said before, don't maybe even have time or just uh, the bandwidth to tackle the data cleansing part. So a lot of the times what I've seen is like, okay, well, we have stuff in SAP and we just need to migrate it to, to, to Salesforce without even thinking, do we need all of those, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of rows of data in Salesforce, you know, there, there's a bunch of maybe junk. So I guess that's what I was getting to is, you know, if you're coming in and talking not only to architects, but also to business, you know, how, what would you advise them 
you know, when it comes to uh, data cleansing before it's loaded into Salesforce. Yeah, so data filtering, which is the one that you mentioned, is just not bringing over some data. I mean, that's the easiest one. That's literally one of those attributes is controlled, right? Where you can control the level of data that goes in. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that, not just data quality, um, which is one, let's say, let's say, you know, I have salespeople across the globe and I want to onboard by region. So I need to be able to say, okay, let's onboard the U.S. Northeast this month. Next month, I'm going to onboard the West Coast. Next month, I'm going to onboard Canada. And I want to use the same code, the same data migration code. Um, let's say I'm running a pilot. So I want to run with the pilot. Um, the pilot is successful. Great. I want to run the same data migration code to get the rest of the company on because the systems are running in parallel. Um, right? It's not, it's not just the QA aspect that's important for the control. Um, but there are lots of benefits. Let's say um, I have a developer and he wants to develop in a scratch org and he needs data there or in a small sandbox and can't fit all the data. If I, if I code my migration where I can easily toggle these filters, um, I can you know, give them realistic data at any time in any org. Um, so there's a lot, a lot, a lot of benefits of building this control into your, um, you know, into your data migrations um, which is which is one of the reasons why it's it's one of the attributes, um, and it's absolutely a reason for or helps with it with the with the filtering out of data that you don't want to migrate either because it's you know too old um, or because it's just junk for whatever reason the the legacy system was creating creating bad Got data, it. yeah. Um, so when I'm thinking data cleansing, I'm usually thinking in terms of uh, two types. It's either merging duplicates, which is perfect to happen at the migration. Because if I have two contacts, I identify them as a duplicate, I can create one contact in Salesforce. And then as long as I know that these contacts were merged um, using the transformation code, I can um, not merge their children of that, but associate the children of both of the source records to the single source record in Salesforce. Right, so if I'm migrating activities, for example, even though they have activities related to the two contacts that were duplicated on the data migration, I can create one contact and then associate all of the activities from both source records to, um, to the one contact in Salesforce. So that's what I, that's what I would call uh, record level data cleansing. And the other side is field level data cleansing. And that's the kind of stuff is, um, you know, I'm tracking my customers by industry. And over time, I ended up with 5,000 of them, so the data is useless. I want to recategorize them to something um, that's more actionable or more consumable, right? Let's recategorize to a hierarchy, you know, um, of industries. So I have a primary industry, which maybe be the 10 of them, and then a sub-industry, maybe there's 50 and a sub-sub or something like that, right? So that's kind of level of, of data cleansing as well. Um, and that's Got not it. to mention things like getting rid of bad email addresses that are bouncing, um, phone numbers that are missing digits, um, names that are all capital and you want to, you know, put them in, in a proper camel case so that they don't look funny when you do your mailings or your emails, right? You have all that kind of stuff too, which is just generic data scrubbing. Got it. Um, I'm wondering, do you have any, uh, so we're, we've been kind of primarily and the use cases we're discussing are related to the, to the sales cloud. Um, 
do you have any advice? You know, I, I've worked in the past on some migrations of, you know, for example, data from one vendor, community vendor, like Blithium to maybe like Salesforce community cloud. Um, have you done any type of work related to this other cloud or I'm not sure if there's anything you're, you're able to share. So um, community cloud is easy as a service cloud because those are Salesforce objects, right? So the, all of the same things apply. All the best, all the best practices would apply to a data migration or an integration, regardless if it's Salesforce or not, for the most okay. part. There are some minor exceptions. Um, the dealing with the Salesforce APIs um, and the complexity of that and the issues you run into with, you know, with those and how to address them, that is Salesforce specific. Um, but when you're thinking Salesforce, it, it's all the same, whether it's service cloud, um, sales cloud or communities, right? Now, there are differences if you're going to marketing cloud because that was formerly exact contact, right? Exact contact, I think so. Exact target. Exact target, right, sorry. Um, so it's really different, a different API to connect to it. And I believe it's the same for commerce cloud. Correct. Right. So, so my, my book really focuses on, you know, sales, sales cloud, but it's the same as, as you know, um, um, service cloud communities, anything that's using the Salesforce API. As okay, opposed great. to the exact target API or the commerce cloud API or even the you know Tableau CRM API, but you don't generally migrate data to Tableau CRM. Um, but no, and also all the industry cloud, financial services, health cloud, all that kind of stuff. Excellent. Uh, one of the chapters that you have in your book is dedicated to uh, basically data synchronization patterns. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more what data synchronization is and you know what are the patterns associated with it? Yeah, so data synchronization um, essentially is keeping two systems in sync. So if you update a contact in your ERP system or you change the billing address in your accounting system, you want that to flow to Salesforce um, or vice versa, right? Or both or bi-directional. So that's what we're calling data synchronization patterns. Um, and I walked through seven or eight of them. I don't even remember. Um, and they're basically various techniques on how to keep data in sync. Um, and it starts really, really simple. So the, first, the first synchronization pattern, for an example, is really easy. Delete all the data in the target system or the target object and replace it with the data from the source object and guess what? Everything's gonna match. Um, there is almost no room for error. Um, and, then, and then it'll go through the pros and cons of that. And it's gonna say, what are the pros and cons of this? Um, the pro is it's a real simple pattern. I can code it in an afternoon. Um, it's probably very reliable. It's not gonna break. Things aren't gonna go wrong with it. What are the cons of it? Um, one, it's slow. Uh, two, I can't update the record in Salesforce. So if I want to add like a notes field, I'm going to lose the notes. Um, I can't make child records off it because we're wiping it and you're going to lose the IDs. Um, right? So there are various pros and cons of it. 
So I'll take the first pattern and then I'm going to, I'm going to say, what are the pros and cons of it? Then I'm going to move to the next pattern. Um, and it's going to, um, build on it, build on the first pattern, um, and try to address the cons. And then sometimes you're going to introduce more cons, but you, but usually what happens is the con, the additional con that you're introducing is complexity, right? Um, so you keep getting more complex, but you're solving for all these problems that were created. So for example, the next one, the next pattern is going to be, okay, I won't delete the data. I'll just update all of the records uh, using an upsert, right? So that'll create okay. new ones and update them. Um, what are my cons there? One, it's still slow because I'm updating. Two, I'm changing the last modified dates for no reason if nothing changed. Um, three, I might have records that were deleted and now they're sitting there. I could have those, right? It doesn't synchronize deletions, um, right? And then um, I'll go to the next say, pattern and say, I need to deal with a deletion issue. So I'm going to add a targeted delete. I'm going to say, okay, what records exist in Salesforce, but not in the other system. Um, and then that's, and then we'll do a deletion of those in Salesforce. So now it addresses that con, but again, I'm adding a layer of complexity and another thing that can potentially go wrong. Um, now I still have that issue of it's slow. Um, so I'll say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the same thing that I'm doing for the deletions. I'll do that for updates and insertions. I'm only going to update records that need to be updated. I'm only going to do insertions and I'm going to do targeted deletion. Um, but now I have a really complex integration. And if it breaks, something goes wrong. If it fails today, what happens tomorrow? I need to go back um, and fix it, right? So there's problems with failures. So now I expand on the pattern and I say, um, okay, I'm still going to do that because it's very fast and it can run it every minute, but um, I'm going to add a weekend rebuild when I, nobody's, when I know nobody's in the system. And at that point, I'm going to do a complete update every single record um, and then do a targeted delete again. So now I'm mixing the two patterns, right? And then you end up mixing and matching all of these techniques. Right, so it's really done in a way that's you know that's that's really understandable and continues to build on the previous lessons we learned um, while addressing the issues that are created, um, and, and it's all about understanding the trade-offs between one technique um, and to another. Right, so it's not only that so that you can do this; it's so that you can understand why we're using these various techniques and and you know which one is the best the best for your scenario. Um, note that everything that we talked about and everything in this, that particular uh, chapter is really talking about batch integrations, not real time. Okay. Um, I have a different chapter on, on real time. Because um, real time in a lot of ways is simpler. Just something changed, I pushed the change. Got it, so yeah, that's an actually interesting uh, point you just made that we were discussing primarily about batch, uh, but I guess, can you touch just a little bit and, and explain really what what a real-time integration is and potentially what can be a use case for it? Um, and also maybe like data migration related, related, is there such a thing as data migration with the real-time integration itself? Uh, no, so no. Okay. <laughs> um, so the definition of data migration is I'm going to turn off a system, 
meaning it's a permanent movement um, and change of ownership. That's how I differentiate between immigration and integration. So an integration would be um, have have one or two, two or more systems, and I need to move data between them on an ongoing basis, and both systems will remain in production. A data migration is the same thing, except the goal is to move the data out of one system into the other system. The, the new system takes ownership of the data going forward and we shut off the legacy system. Um, so what you, you could, in theory, come up with a situation where I wanna run the, the systems in parallel. So I run an integration to keep, keep them in sync. And then when I'm ready to turn off the legacy system, we turn it off and a data migration is not needed. Um, and maybe okay. you'll call that a real-time migration, but I, I would avoid such terminology. It'll be confusing. Um, okay. Yeah. What was the second half of your question? Ah, real-time integrations. Yeah, yeah. So, so really, 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 really easy and classic case. Um, anytime you have a complex workflow where you need different systems that have different specializations, and CRM needs a lot of that because it's the core. So for example, I got to send an email. Um, I log it in, e in the CRM system and then it goes out and triggers the email. That's a real-time integration. Um, granted, you didn't code it. Maybe you installed an application, a Salesforce app that does it for you, or maybe Salesforce does it natively. But at the end of the day, that's a real-time integration with an email server. Um, another great example, um, let's say I have a, a uh, um, an external system that you know that's used to calculate you know tax and shipping, and they need to be able to generate a quote on the fly. So you enter the data. The, the maybe the call the call center rep is taking an order. They're logging that into into you know Salesforce orders system. Let's say um, it goes out, calculates the thing. They finalize the order. So it goes out real time because I have the customer on the phone. I can't have them wait till you know two hours till the next batch runs. So real time makes a call out, sends out all the order information, the weight of the package, calculates all the tax and shipping. Maybe it makes a call out to UPS's website to do the, you know, the shipping calculation or the FedEx. Um, that comes back real time. I give the quote to the, to the customer. I thank them. They give me the okay. I press the button. It then sends the data to the, um, to the ERP system where it, where which owns the inventory. The inventory is adjusted. Now keep in mind, nothing actually shipped. It's just removing the item saying it's no longer available to sell, right? That's what I'm calling an inventory adjustment. Um, then, you know, an email gets pushed to the third party warehousing company, um, ship this item to this company, um, and then they go and process that. They receive it, they get an acknowledgement. All of those are kind of real-time integrations. It's as somebody does something, or some okay. event happens, um, data is pushed between you know two or more systems. Okay, um, a lot of these are done with Salesforce apps. If you're using like Nintex um, or Conga, right? Those are real-time integrations. I need I push a button. I need to generate a doc. Data goes out, leaves the Salesforce servers, goes to Nintex. Nintex generates the document, sends it back. Got it. Um, and. What are uh, you? You kind of touch a bit in in your book, and um, and I think it's 
extremely important topic in, in the whole that data migration world where uh, some of the uh, um, admins, BAs, even solution architects sometimes get confused where to turn on and where to use external IDs. So can you touch a little bit on, on external IDs? What are they and what are some of the best practices around uh, using them? So uh, an external ID is a really, really, really great feature um, that Salesforce has where you can set a field that's used, a secondary field that can be used to update a record uh, in Salesforce. Um, so, so for example, if I'm integrating with, um, with my ERP system and the ERP system is pushing orders in, I can push the ERP's order number to Salesforce and it matches based on the order ID. So it'll do an update based on the external ID. Um, so you don't have to pass in the Salesforce ID. Um, you can update a record on a secondary ID. I think Salesforce now supports something like 23 IDs, external IDs on any given, um, on any given uh, object. Um, so yeah, so their, their function is to basically store the ID of a part or of a matching record uh, in an external system. And then that can be used for your updates. Before, remember when we talked about upserts, um, upserts are generally used with external IDs where it, uh, if the record exists, it updates. If it doesn't exist, it just creates a new record. Um, and that's all based on the external systems uh, uh, ID, which is the external ID in Salesforce. In terms of best practices for data migrations, you absolutely have to always have an external ID on every object that you load. Um, and that's so that you can trace back that record to the source in case you need to fix it later. Um, if you don't have a way to tie these records back, um, you simply won't be able to repair the data. Now, there, there are a couple of edge cases where you need to migrate data to Salesforce objects that aren't customizable, so you can't add external ID fields. Um, and there's some techniques to deal with that, but I'm not gonna get into it in the call. So uh, when I say you absolutely must have, take that with a grain of salt, um, sometimes you can't, uh, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so, but generally you absolutely must have one. Um, always enforce it as unique. Always enforce them as unique. If you don't enforce them as unique, um, you can actually have two records with the same external ID. Um, and then your upsearch will fail if there's two of them. Quite frankly, I don't even understand why Salesforce allows you to make an external ID not unique. Um, I, I, I don't understand why you would ever create an external ID that's not unique. So um, when you are working with a source system, um, like what would be a logical way if you're you know, working with a relational database and you're loading a table into Salesforce, um, I, I guess what logic do you follow to evaluate which would be the right field or value or row, I guess I should say, um, as designated as an external ID. So, it, so uh, I mean, it, it's, it depends, unfortunately. Um, so let's take an easy case where it's a one-to-one. -one. So if I have one customer, it's gonna become one record in Salesforce, one contact record in Salesforce. And it's a contact table in the legacy system. Then the obvious choice is the primary key of the source system data. Right, real easy. 
Um, where it gets a little bit complex is when you start aggregating data. So, um, for example, I'm going to load um, my transaction history, but because Salesforce uh, Salesforce is expensive to storage. I only want to load one record per month. So I can't use the transaction ID because I'm summarizing it down. Um, so if I'm going to load one transaction record per month per customer, then my external ID would be the legacy customer ID plus the year and month, right? So it needs to be okay. a unique identifier, essentially. Um, and if you can't figure one out, then you can like concatenate every single field on the object into a single field, um, assuming it's not like 90 of them. Yep. Um, but there should be able to be a combination of fields that you can select that will uniquely identify the record to be loaded. Then you can do upserts. Um, it's enforced as unique, so you can't accidentally migrate the same contact twice or the same record twice, which is awesome. Um, and then lastly, um, you can trace back your data and you can always validate it. Um, it had the additional benefit that it's indexed. So if you type the ID, the legacy ID, because it's an external ID into the Salesforce search bar, it will find a record um, and come up in the search, which is, which is great because again, makes it real, real easy to test. Um, one more real quick um, on external IDs. I never, ever, ever make uh, numeric external IDs. I always make them text um, because if I need to change it later, um, I can. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm loading uh, my, uh, my customers and their, their companies, right? So okay. the legacy system has a customer's table, corporate customers. So I load them in with the primary key and the legacy system had integers for the primary key. So I leave it numeric. Um, and then wonderful, it worked. And then, you know, three weeks later, they said, oh, we also got to load our vendors. And in the legacy system, the vendors is its own table and they have their own numeric IDs. Um, okay. But I'm going to create them also at accounts in Salesforce, but with a different record type. Now, what happens? What's my external ID? I can't, I can't, they, they're the overlap in the IDs in the legacy system because they're in different tables. So the IDs can overlap. They're all auto numbers, one, two, three, four. So I'll have a vendor with an ID of one and a customer with an ID of two. And because they're numeric, there's nothing I can really do about it um, except multiply it out. I can multiply the customers by a million um, and leave the vendors, let's say, as themselves, right? So all the customers will be like one million, one, one million, two, and the vendors will just be one, two, three, four. Um, and then if you have five to five objects and you need five different multipliers, so anyway, if it's text, you can just do like C dash the number or V dash the number for the external ID. And it, and it allows you to, you know, to migrate from multiple objects into a single object in Salesforce without conflicts. So that's why I, I tend to like um, alphanumeric external IDs. Excellent, that's very interesting actually. Um, I like the part about concatenating uh, fields that I never actually thought about that before. Uh, uh, great. So I wanted to also ask you, you mentioned also in our conversation today, but also, you know, partially in your book about some of the tools basically like, I guess, third party apps that can help with data migration between, you know, sandbox and the production or sandbox and the sandbox or, you know, multiple orgs. 
Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything you would like to highlight or anything, any recommendation um, on, from that perspective? Um, I mean, I, I tend to not recommend products. Again, okay. the, my book is completely product agnostic. You know, I, I tend to think in terms of, you know, business requirements, like what, what is the need? Um, you know, most ETL tools, they have to have a reasonably decent Salesforce connector. Um, they'll probably get the job done. I like to do all of my data transformations in raw SQL um, okay. because it's just super powerful. Um, and I know it well. And, you know, just about any client that I work with will have a relational database somewhere that you can use. So it's a very transferable skill to a wide variety of platforms. Um, so I tend to like SQL for my data transformations, and then I'll use an ETL tool that has the connectors that I need. So it's not just Salesforce, right? Obviously, if I'm working with Salesforce, I need a Salesforce connector. But if I'm working with, you know, dynamic CRM, I want that same ETL tool to have a dynamic CRM connector. Um, if I'm migrating from SAP, I want an SAP connector, um, right? So, so it's really, what are the connectors that I need? Does it have that? Um, and then does it have, you know, the quality of, of the APIs? So for example, um, a, lot of, a lot of these ETL connectors or ETL tools will have a Salesforce connector, but for whatever reason, they won't support um, the merge API. So maybe I don't need to do any record merging. Um, so that's fine, I don't care. I'll stick with the tool that, that I have. Um, but if you do, then that changes the requirement for the, the tool that you need. So it, the, it's a tool selection process based on your need. Um, that's all I would say. Um, there, there, are, there are a few um, backup tools, own backup comes to mind, that are used for like backing up data and metadata um, and moving them between orgs uh, if needed, if you want to build sandboxes out and whatnot. Um, Salesforce, on, on, if you search for it, recommends a few of them. Um, you can find those online if you just want to you know, replicate data for the purpose of testing or something like that. Got it. Um, and sort of in closing, is there, obviously you have your book and I'm sure you recommend it, but is there anything else, any other book you would recommend to the listeners? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be around Salesforce and technology, uh, something that um, you would want to share with the rest of us. Um, I'm trying to keep it relevant to your podcast. Um, I, I will say that uh, sales, uh, A-Press, Okay. They have a whole slew of Salesforce books out now, and they keep pushing them out. They're really, really great. All of them, I believe, are very, very good. Um, I've read probably half of them. Um, now, no surprise, I work with the publisher, so um, you know, so I know them. I know them well. Some of my friends have published a book. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get the secondary. So DJ or the Panker recently published Salesforce Architects book. Um, I haven't got around to reading that, but I'm sure it's awesome. I've known DJ for a few years. I worked at him, with him at, uh, at Cap Gemini. Okay. Um, I want to get, I know he wrote it with someone else. I don't remember his co-author's name and I don't want to discredit him. Uh, James Hutchinson, um, the, the book of the Salesforce Architects Handbook um, was just released. Maybe you should have him on your podcast. I'll, I'll get you in touch with him. That would be uh, great, thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, awesome. 
uh, Phil Winemaster's books are really, really good. He was the first one that A-Press published was Practical Salesforce Development Without Code. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's great. Well, thanks for sharing. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being on this podcast. And um, hopefully uh, we get to talk again about some, some projects. Absolutely. And I'd love to be uh, to join you again. Yes. Um, thank, thank you for you. having me.